0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics and the Humanities. Uh, I'm Tom Merrill. I'm a professor at, the, at American University. Uh, I'm here with my colleague, Sarah Marsh, who uh, is also a professor at American University. Hello, Sarah.
1: Hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Uh, and we have a, a special guest today who is our, our friend, uh, Paul Ludwig, who is a uh, tutor at St. John's College. A uh, tutor is a St. John's word that means professor anywhere else. So it's important to make that clear. Um, Paul is uh, a classicist and an expert on ancient political thought, and he has a new book out. Which let me see if I can pull it up here. Uh, it's called "Recovering." Uh, Paul, tell us the title of your book. Rediscovering civic rediscovering political friendship. I'm sorry. It's uh, it's, uh, and the subtitle is.
2: Uh. What is the subtitle? Uh, <laughs> Aristotle and Modern Identity, Community, and Equality. Right. Um,
0: and it's just out from Cambridge. It's got a lot of blurbs from fancy people, including Harvey Mansfield and Daniel Allen, which is a pretty great set of uh, blurbs, I must say, that uh, as, as your friend, I'm envious um, of, your, of your fame and fortune. Uh so um and I we hope to have you on later to actually talk about your book on some future episode. But all we'll say for right now is that uh, everyone in the audience, uh, all five members of the audience should go out and buy multiple copies.
2: <laughs>
0: Thanks if very much. A fair <laughs> statement. Um so we're here, we brought Paul on to talk about Aristophanes' Clouds, which is of course is a play from uh fifth century Athens. Um, and I guess since I'm the person who asked you guys to talk about this, uh, I should explain why I, I make my students read this play, oftentimes, um, what, pairing it with Plato's apology. And, uh, you know, most of our students, at least in the school of public affairs at American university are, are not expecting this. I think it's fair to say that they're expecting a class where they're going to learn about the you know the three branches of government and how to be a lobbyist and things like that and, and here we are you know knee deep in fart jokes and um you know lizards crapping on socrates and uh, there's always a little bit of uh, difficulty trying to figure out what, what exactly is is going on here and why are we doing it so i thought we could have a conversation and just try to talk through like what are the the serious things that might be uh, of interest in the in this play and, and I was thinking, it seems to me that there are two themes that are really, you know, of deep interest in the play, apart from the all the inappropriate jokes, of which there are many. Um, one is that the, what does this tell us about Socrates? Right? And so for those of us who love Plato and study Plato, that, that's a big deal. And this is a very important text. Um, and then the other, but and maybe more important for this conversation, um, this story really is kind of a parable about liberal education, about going to college about how going to college can go wrong, right? Um, and so I think it helps provide a kind of comic counterpoint to a lot of the things that, that we often say about why, you know, what we think we're doing in college. And I hope that by the end of the conversation, we'll be able to talk about both of the, or at least touch on both of those themes. Um, but I thought we, what we would do is we'd start by rehearsing the story of the play, since not all the listeners will have read it or read it recently, um, and then we'll read some passages and then we'll, we'll open it up for more broad, you know, wide ranging discussion. Does that sound good, Paul? Sounds great. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so let's start by, by just trying to walk through the, the, um, the, the, the play itself. Um, the main character is this, this fellow Strepsiades. Maybe we could start with a question. Who is Strepsiades and, and what's his, what's his, his deal in this play?
2: Yeah. Strepsiades is, um uh a man with debts he uh was lower class and married a rich girl and as a result his son is sort of in between the two of them and has these expensive tastes that the mom uh allegedly inculcated him so he his son's name is Phidippides. uh Words with hippos in them have horse, you know, only rich people could have horses that they're very expensive. Pheidippides raises horses all day. So Strepsides has a debt problem and he's, um, he's looking for a way to get out of his debts and he's hoping that education will be his ticket uh, not to uh, a better job or something to earn more money, but um, to legally, or yeah, uh, in law courts at least, uh, to argue that his debts are, you know, that the debtors have no merit and that he'll he'll be able to use rhetoric that he'll learn uh, at Socrates' school. That's his plan uh, to get out of his debts um, uh, by, by using clever, clever rhetoric to explain them away in court. I mean,
0: he's kind of a crook,
2: so, isn't he? Well, his name has twisted in it, and he twists and turns at night, uh, attacked by his debts. Later, when he's learning with Socrates, he twists and turns in his sleeping bag full of fleas that Socrates gives him to increase his endurance. Uh, but he does seem to twist justice, and or to, at least to want to. Um, and that, yeah, that is sort of starting the plot of the play. Um, uh, he, he. I guess you could say that he, um is too stupid to learn a lot of the stuff going on at the school now a lot of the stuff going at the school seems pretty stupid too or at least um so out there that no normal person would want to learn about it so you know how many of a flea's own feet can a flea jump you know the broad jump of a flea well you know so you have to measure the flea's foot and then um, see how many of those go into the broad you know it's crazy stuff like that going on at school But anything that Socrates tries to teach him, he understands in his own way and not uh, usually very well. And so eventually he flunks out of the school, uh, but with a lot of sort of dangerous knowledge. It would be better if he had never learned even in his own way. And he tries to get his son then to go to school, his son being smarter than he. um, The son thinks it's a terrible idea. He doesn't want to lose his tan like those pale Socratics are all. Nerds, and he doesn't want to be like that. They're graduate students. The they're, Socratics are graduates. Yeah, they really
1: are. <laughs> <laughs> so true. The door of the Thinkery opens, uh, Socrates' school, the Thinkery opens, and everyone's in odd poses. The, the note says, <laughs> I thought, yeah, oh, okay. let's grad school.
2: Yet, yeah, dual, no, it's really true. When I uh, first went to the University of Chicago and walked into the Regenstein Library, there's a coffee shop with olive olive drab walls and everyone was drinking coffee facing a wall with their book and i thought these people are so odd and you know five years later i was exactly like them but yeah when the door opens uh, all the students have their anuses pointed toward the sky doing astronomy with one end and their their uh, eyes pointed down to fleas doing entomology with their other end so it's that kind of joking uh but like you said, Sarah, it's also a little bit serious to all of us who have been through been through liberal education.
0: <laughs> Can we just go back to Strepsides for a second? I always think of him as sort of like Homer Simpson, that he's he's a dope, but he's kind of a lovable dope. And it's hard not to like just take pleasure in the, the, in his, his sheer idiocy. Um, and I think about you know when like at various points when he's trying to figure out how to get out of his debts and, and he's like, well, I'll get a really big magnifying glass. <laughs> So I'll burn the words off the page <laughs> or, or better yet, um, right before they catch me, I'll commit suicide. That'll show him. Right. <laughs> right. right.
2: Right. And he's lovable in other ways, too, that he truly loves his son and wants a relationship with his son. And he admits his own fault at various points when it's, you know, when his son proves to him that he deserves a beating for being unwise you actually agree yeah i, I guess i really do <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful moment i think all his uh, fathers know that uh, but but for okay. this person then to turn against socrates the way he does i should finish the, the plot and you guys jump in with anything i'm missing but Phidippides does get converted by socrates but he becomes somebody that his father can't love as much um he becomes the past doesn't he Say it again. He becomes a sociopath. Uh, One could say, yeah. Yeah. Education goes awry twice in this play, once for the father and once for the son. The son obviously is converted more to Socrates' way, but somehow, um, you know, he just can't stop talking. You know, I've proven that I should be allowed to beat you, my father. Now I'll prove to you that I should be allowed to beat my mother too. And Strepsides just snaps, the father snaps, and so oh, I can't countenance that. So he turns on Socrates. So for somebody as lovable as Homer, uh Simpson to turn on Socrates is a kind of a big deal that shows there's something wrong with Socrates. Socrates hasn't seen this yet, and Aristophanes maybe even sort of doing him a favor to. Well, let's let all this play out in drama so you can change your ways and it won't play out in real life or so, something along those lines
0: yeah, so and so we should say that so that that, that the the action of the play clearly mirrors what is actually going to happen in the apology, or at least what the way that Plato presents what happens in the apology. Um, but there's a big time difference, right? so it's about twenty five years earlier before the events that we see in the apology. So Socrates is going to be put to death. And, but, and all of it is in some way foreshadowed here. So, and I, I just want to go back to that, that moment that, that Strepsides finds it completely understandable that his son would want to beat him from a certain point of view. <laughs> if you think about it, every sitcom has got like this sort of stupid dad at the center. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's that's a very familiar theme. But, um, and, and remember that Strepsides is also sort of a crook, right? He's trying to, you know, break the law and get out of his debts. But but he has this line right that that um, that if you if the son is going to beat the mother then that's not okay and suddenly he goes from you know everything's cool to his this incredible Hulk moment in which he's like what rah <laughs> <laughs> like and then and then it go the play ends very quickly because all he does is he goes and he burns Socrates think great you Socrates you did this to me um, but it seems to illustrate that that even even Crooks have a sacred line that they can't countenance even in sort of thinking about it. Like, well, that would be okay for that to happen.
2: Right. And for Stripcides, it was his family love. He, he really did love his family and he wouldn't have married that rich girl if he hadn't loved her. Come on, you know, he's really, (laughs) you know, he's sentimental and somehow that, that your mother beating is, if I don't know if you'd say it's not chivalrous, some interpretations said, well, if you can beat your mother, then you can sleep with her. So that it's ultimately incest is at the bottom of this and that would be the line that can't be crossed um obviously if he slept with his mother then his relationship with his father would change uh no and and he, that's the relation that uh he really wanted to preserve i think so he yeah. he in some regard he has some legitimate beef with socrates but it's all overblown you know i don't think socrates really deserves to have his school burnt down um it seems like at the end that the scholars and saris are not burnt in the school uh, there's a little foreshadowing of that at the beginning there might be coals burnt alive because that's their view of the universe that it's a it's an oven and where are the coals <laughs> but, but but they seem to rush out and be chased away and he says beat them beat them hit them hit them like throw stuff at them." And in some versions, uh, a god, Hermes himself, whom he's just prayed to, that's a little statue up on a stick, comes to life and says those lines. Um, uh, modern editors usually don't think that's the right way to do it, but some manuscripts actually have that. So it might be that the gods um, actually are on Strepsites side in some weird weird sense. Yeah, I guess we'll we haven't have- said anything about the clouds themselves yet. So, it's kind of a new god that's introduced into this city in
0: this play. Right. Well, I mean, the play clearly, I mean, so if you think about the charges against Socrates in the Apology, that he's corrupting the youth, right? And we see that with Pheidippides, right? And, you know, so Pheidippides is going to beat his father, but he's also introducing new gods. And Socrates is clearly introducing, like, he has these characters, the clouds. And there are lots of, you know, funny scenes in which, you know, Strepsides has a hard time imagining that the clouds are gods. And he's like, well, but that one has a nose, right? <laughs> If that's that's the thing that he he really cares about
2: um yeah so so uh what should we say about the clouds yeah so comedies have a chorus uh it's a group i think it might have been as many as 24 actors who sing as a whole you know they, there are songs lots of songs in this play and they're usually sung by the chorus and at at a certain point while well, strepsides is trying to learn at the school um Socrates says well introduce you I'll initiate you into the religion of the clouds and he he prays for them to to appear and they actually do they come on stage they're cloudy and you know they look a little bit like human women but they're also sort of misty and um, and they sing these religious songs and um, strepsides like you said it initially has trouble believing. First of all, he has trouble believing that the traditional gods are not don't exist. Socrates is already, and his, even his students have already said that to him, which is probably not the, the move. But they told him, yeah, Zeus Zeus doesn't exist. And Strepsides has trouble even understanding what that would mean. He thinks that Zeus has been deposed. Well, so Zeus, Zeus was always there. He's still around, but somebody else is king in his place.
0: Well, but it's, but it's, it's so beautiful, right? Because it's, it's, uh, Zeus doesn't exist. There's only vortex. And, and, you know, if you think about like as a image of, you know, so I spent a lot of time studying, you know, late moderns where the problem of nihilism is a big thing, but this is the, right. They're, they're used to, there, you know, there's no God. All there is in the universe is like this sucking hole at the center,
2: right? Yes. Yeah. Literally Descartes principles of physics explained everything by the vortex it's this happens later you know hundreds of years later it happens this is like a prophecy of the modern project it's just right. quite remarkable and
0: and but but strepsides can't understand like he, he he doesn't really understand that you know as you say like he thinks that that zeus used to be around he's been deposed and there's this guy vortex who he probably imagines as having like big handlebar mustache and, like tattoos <laughs> He's coming <to>
2: <laughs> he, he personifies everything yeah,
1: right. yeah. Right, right when Socrates talks about the ethereal vortex what i mean what kind of thinking is he doing is he talking about natural phenomena is he you know what's the method that leads him to that particular conclusion
2: yeah it does seem like it's natural phenomena and that that he is um you know is some kind of materialism mm-hmm. along the lines of Uh, Anaxagoras or other um, you know there was one uh, thinker that got in trouble in the Periclean age for saying that the sun was a burning hunk of metal about the size of the Peloponnesus about for a certain number of leagues off the surface of the earth so it's like no the sun is a god (laughs) you know this is crazy or wrong one or the other we're going to prosecute you so uh, but he was a teacher, apparently, you know, and it, it does seem like that is the kind of thing that Aristophanes is attributing to Socrates, which I believe Socrates in the Phaedo uh, does say I went through this youthful phase in which I looked for material causes, mm-hmm. e- uh, efficient causes for everything. Um, and, I you know, I graduated out of that. So it's hard to say whether we might not be in, Maybe you know. Maybe some of the reason he graduated out of it is because he learned something from this play. Mm-hmm. Um, the legend is that um, at the play, people wanted to see whether the mask of Socrates, the character playing, so- you know, the actor playing Socrates, was good enough. So they asked the real Socrates to stand up near the front <laughs> row or something, so they could compare the the ugly physiognomy of Socrates, you know, the goat-like or satyr-like features with the mask. And okay, you can sit down now. Let's go on with the play.
0: but isn't it isn't it the case that strepsides gets something right from the from the point of view of the play that i mean that's part of the comedy is that socrates is is such a smart guy but he he fails to understand some completely obvious things to all normal human beings um so that so that strepsides you know he is he is a dope and and he misunderstands everything and and we laugh at him but but at the end of the day he's in
2: certain human ways he's smarter than socrates is yeah it just uh when we were talking before the podcast started i mean i thought sarah had a really great idea that um i'll I'll take credit for now that um it it seemed to me that there's something about today's progressives that just don't want to understand the trump voter they just want to make them deplorables or right and yet you you need the Trump, you need a few of the Trump voters, right? Otherwise you can't have your progressive agenda, right? So there, there has to be, uh, Socrates needs to at least take into account that there are people like Strepsides and understand the Strepsides of the world. You know, when they're talking about poetry, Strepsides is the one who quotes a bunch of lines. He sings a bunch of lines. He's got a kind of poetic soul. Socrates doesn't seem to have that he breaks everything down into the smallest unit you know what's the gender of that word or so you know who cares about the gender of that word yeah
0: he's i mean he's very academic right and the i mean that socrates in this play is is very academic in that the normal kind of pejorative sense of that word is that he seems to be concerned with things that that are completely trivial or seem completely trivial to a normal human being yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
1: paul can you talk with us a little bit about the role of those um Linguistic ideas, so the the rhythms of the speech in the play that Aristophanes is using, Aristophanes is using, and the the genders of of the words. How would how would his audience have understood that that play between Socrates and Socrates?
2: Yeah, the, um, so one of Socrates' things is he wants to rationalize language. Language can't be what it sort of grew up as it needs to be smarter than that so if it doesn't make sense to have one word for both a male chicken and a female chicken or a male you know so he wants to say well there's a fowl and a fowl less you know or a a chicker and a chickeness you yes. know and so i think you can you can kind of see yeah of course it would be better if language were perfectly rational but but it's not and we're not going to change it you know to make <laughs> it a little so, bit like Esperanto yeah Esperanto yeah yeah exactly I mean, it'd be a perfectly rational language that was all planned out right right, right. and I this think bigger, you know, we can see things. a little bit of that you know it feels like Newspeak right 1984. Mm-hmm. so you can see a little bit of that there was the initial resistance to Ms right you got Miss and Mrs what's wrong with that but, ms is not a word it's like a new thing they made up it doesn't even stand for anything right right
1: yeah. <laughs> so yeah.
2: i think people go through these phases when you try to change the language rationalize language uh, the french academy has always tried to do this right the french french language needs to be kept pure uh don't let it evolve whatever you do don't let don't let it evolve naturally <laughs> um so yeah and it kind of while this is all going on um in Greek at least, and in a few of the translations, the penguins translations would be the most um, recent of the metrical ones. All this is being done in meter, So the very things that they're talking about are in some ways there in the um, language itself that they're using. And some of those effects I think are probably translatable. I think you guys mentioned one earlier before we started again from the West translation. Um,
1: the dactyl. Yeah. There's,
2: all yeah. This,
1: yeah. there's all this play on dactyls and everyone's speaking in dactyls and there's pleasure in, in recognizing what the text is doing and how you're being involved. And I was wondering if historically that was part of the point for Aristophanes.
2: Yeah, I think for sure. And it's a kind of meta level too, if you're talking about dactyls and you realize you're in actual dactyls, mm-hmm. that that that's that kind of pleasure that is a little bit outside the play The the member the people the characters in the play themselves aren't having that particular pleasure we the audience are mm-hmm. so it um creates a another layer but probably the audience would have picked up on that for uh,
0: sure yeah, yeah. I mean, oh yeah i mean it's hard for us because most of us are not you know
2: educated to think about in those terms right most of these audience members had sung songs in various meters and they knew how to you know, this was part of the education yeah, so I want to mention one, very
0: well. one other thing about the poetry and the clouds, That um, and, and then move on a little bit, but um,
2: Aristophanes himself appears and is one of the clouds, right? I, yeah, so there's these strange moments in comedy. Um, we might call it breaking the fourth wall or uh, self-reflexive moments where literally in each of the 11, I think in most of the 11 comedies, the chorus at some point steps forward they call it the parabasis the the walking near they come closer to the footlights, so to speak to the edge of the stage sometimes they may have throw off their masks or costumes and they start talking as um, actors hired actors instead of as the characters they're supposed to be and they say you know you judges and you audience you should really like this play the best because (laughs) frankly it is the best and you know they say stuff that's it would be outrageously arrogant and you know cheating and everything because these plays were performed in a contest you know you had you had competitors you won the first prize and it's it's like like the first prize. And in this one the clouds uh speak in Aristophanes's own voice which is is rare even among the I think there might be one or two other instances of it among the 11 plays but it's a very big deal for them to say and he, he starts out with this wonderful metaphor you know I was an unwed mother and I gave birth to this play. And I, I didn't want people to know whose it was. And, you know, because I wasn't allowed to have a child yet. And and, and they nourished it as their own. And it was great. And you you guys were so smart. But then I wrote this Clouds. And you guys didn't like it. So this is obviously a rewrite. Uh, what we have is an attempt to take a first version which failed and didn't get first prize and maybe represent it. Do we know anything it Never. About- I think it never actually did compete again. Uh, but you can see in the premises it's it's second edition. Huh. And he says, you know, you just didn't understand how wise it was. And now I'm going to explain to you how it was wise. <laughs> and, right. He says it's the wisest of his comedies. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: When he so. likens the first edition to a, a child that's exposed like right. mother and doesn't survive because of yeah. the exposure, which is a really kind of Fascinating metaphor for the creative life.
2: It really is. It shows how harsh it is, um, and how competitive. And um, he's dealing with a people, a, a bunch of Homer Simpsons, and way and smarter people too, that Socrates never had to deal with. Or right? he has to plead, He has to win this applause somehow by hook or by crook.
0: He's he's more of them. He he understands them in a way that that Socrates doesn't.
2: Right. In order to be successful, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, he has to have that deeper knowledge, um, right?
0: I mean, just just in the way that anytime that you're trying to sell something, or you know, Steven Spielberg understands something about the American psyche that that right. you know the Faulkner scholar does not, right? right I guess would be the um, exactly. So I, I guess the um, Socrates thinkery um, is a version of the Academy even today, right? That, that we we study things because we think that they're really cool, even though they look trivial and gross, like, you know, Nat's farting, which, which is something that comes up a lot. Um, but there's also the and w- what seems to be the more important thing for Strepsides is this the moral teaching, right? Or the, the moral question that comes up. And so as the as the play goes, he's he's he comes because he thinks he's going to learn how to get rich quick or get out of his dad's. Um, it doesn't work because he's too dumb, right? He's he's too literal to understand what's going on. And then Phidippides goes, and once Phidippides goes, there's this famous scene, um, the the sort of like dance off between um, just speech, at least in my edition, is called just speech and unjust speech. I guess some editions call it stronger speech and weaker speech.
2: Yeah, the better argument, the weaker argument. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, of which the upshot is that that um, right justice is only by convention and that nature is really the thing that's that yeah, I guess if you're going to summarize it, um, should we, should we go through some of those passages? Absolutely. Um, and so, and I have to, I have to warn our viewers, I'm hoping that we're going to get an explicit content marker on this episode so that, <laughs> so that trigger yeah, work for rap albums in the 1990s, like they now will go viral. Uh, but, um, so we'll, we'll have to see about that. Can we, um, let's see uh can we start with the when just speech and unjust speech come out and start talking to each other
1: right let's maybe for folks who haven't read in a while um maybe frame it up so at this point phidipides has come to the thinkery in his father's place and he is being taught by socrates and then finally socrates says i'll just let just speech and unjust speech speak for themselves and then these two figures come out of the thinkery and just speech right. is dressed in these older threadbare clothes and unjust speech is dressed as a dandy He's got some feather in his hat and comes out of <laughs> the thinkery and then they have this rap battle between yeah. you know yeah, exactly. which, which uh tradition of ideas or which methodology is, is the one that Pheidippides ought to subscribe to. Is that right. the and, frame generally?
0: Yeah, no, that, that helps. And, and just speeches is, is uh, the, you know, the older traditional, right? Like very buttoned down um, <laughs> sort of presentation. Whereas unjust speech is, is, you know, he's hip, right? That's the, mm-hmm. that's, and, and he he understands himself to be hip. What we would, what we call hip. Yeah. Um, Should we start from around, uh, so this is the, I have the West translation, but uh, around 889, just speech comes out and this is their first exchange. Does one of you want to be just speech and the other, which one of you is unjust speech? This this is the real question
1: I'm
2: asking here. You know, why don't you go, because I'm looking at the Greek and then I have this really archaic translation called up on uh, Perseus. Uh,
1: Okay. Um, Tom, I'll be uh, unjust speech.
2: Okay, all right.
1: And you can be just speech.
0: Okay, so this is just speech. Come out here, show yourself to the spectators. You're so bold.
1: Go wherever you want, for I'll destroy you much more by speaking among the many.
0: You'll destroy me? Who are you?
1: A speech.
0: Yeah, a weaker one.
1: (laughs) But I'll defeat you, who claim to be stronger than I.
0: By doing what wise things?
1: By discovering novel notions.
0: Yes, these things are flourishing because of these mindless ones here, pointing to the audience.
1: No, they're wise.
0: I'll destroy you badly.
1: (laughs) Tell me, by doing what?
0: By speaking the just things.
1: I'll overturn them by speaking against them, for I quite deny that justice even exists. You
0: deny that it exists?
1: Yes, for come, where is it? With the gods. If justice exists, then why didn't Zeus perish when he bound his father?
0: Oh, this is the evil that's spreading around. Give me a basin. He's going to throw up. He's (laughs) nauseous.
1: You're an old fogey and out of tune.
0: You're a pederast and shameless.
1: You've spoken roses of me.
0: You're ribald.
1: You crown me with lilies.
0: And a parasite.
1: You don't recognize that you're sprinkling me with gold.
0: Before, this wasn't gold, but lead.
1: But as it is now, this is adornment for me.
0: You're too bold.
1: And you are ancient.
0: Maybe we, should, maybe we should stop
2: there. Uh, what's going on here, Paul? Well, so far, just, <laughs> it's a lot like today's politics, right? Just uh, <laughs> casting <laughs> insults back and forth. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's crucial that Socrates doesn't have a hand in this. He's going to let the, uh, the traditional uh, just argument get deconstructed kind of by its own weight, by just what unjust people would say about it. Um, And somehow they'll, they'll, uh, that's supposed to be a stage, you know, in, in, and I think we see this in liberal education too. A lot of, maybe it's a little old fashioned now, but uh, a lot of professors used to want to rid their students of prejudice when they came for, you know, it's the first day freshman, you know, uh, maybe history or or psychology or something and you know that you want to you want to find out where your students conservative prejudices are and, and cut them down to size and um instead of socrates doing this himself he he has this sort of a real demonstration of just what's said out there in society that will do it do the job for him I mean,
0: socrates himself seems to be neutral uh he doesn't he doesn't make the unjust speech himself although it's pretty clear that that he's adjacent to unjust speech right I mean he doesn't think that
2: zeus is, is a thing that will punish unjust people right he doesn't seem to believe in justice on the other hand he's very ascetic he doesn't do this for his own pleasure um, all he does is think all day whereas the unjust speech doesn't seem to be a thinker but is you know he he's going to get more girls or whatever guys even um, if he if he has no morals right
1: so the center of this to me seems Paul the the line where unjust speech says i quite deny that justice even exists and can you situate that for us in terms of what just speech is saying and then what socrates is trying to teach phidippides
2: yeah um so just in the broadest context um you know, in Thucydides and in many of the fragments of uh, sophists, or so pre, pre-Socratics that we have, um, the the whole appreciation of nature and natural necessity that we were talking about before a kind of materialist argument had um, forced them into a, um, a thesis where justice um, is just a convention among whatever Whatever people are in the group that you're in, um, they notice this that you know Persians are just among themselves, but they're not just to Greeks. Vice versa, just the same way Greeks might be just among themselves, but not to Persians. Whereas fire burns the same both in Persia and Greece. So to say that uh, justice doesn't even exist is uh, um, it's a it's it's not conservative. It's not normal. It's not what the majority say, but it is out there as a as a important idea in the sort of sophisticated discourse. And, of course, it just makes the better argument who's a traditionalist may want to throw up. You know, that's that's just the kind of talk that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We've we've heard that kind of thing before.
0: But that, that's not a rational response. That's not a counter argument. That's just, you know, you disgust me and that you know if you want reasons that that's that's like saying i have no reasons you just you know it's a taste you know
2: right and in so i guess you people listening can probably tell from where we're going that the better argument is going to lose this
0: right it's not, yeah it's
2: not really a stronger argument um and it's funny that they do you know he brings them on stage what are you well, i'm an argument yes you know, so, this is hilarious it's so literal uh but in basically the these better argument becomes worsted or defeated in the course of this um and comes to agree with with the so-called the worst argument or the unjust speech and really ceases to be an argument uh, as and and I guess that shows all along that what he what he was arguing for was not really uh logical exactly he had a set of beliefs so there was a kind of faith there uh where the rationalism. And I, you know, I would say it's probably a shallow rational, but it's more rational, more logical. That's all on the side of the the unjust speech or the the so-called weaker.
0: Yeah. I mean, part of the the difficulty of interpreting the play is just trying to figure out what is, what does Aristophanes think about this, this exchange, Mm -hmm. right? But clearly the exchange, as you say, Paul, is something that's going on in Greek culture. uh, And you you see it all the way through Plato. You see it in the Melian dialogue and Thucydides, right? Um, And we see it today, right? This is, this, you know, it's a question, and and but when we we bring students into the university and we say your job is to question everything, <laughs> right? Well, really, like question everything, like and, you know, does that? How far does that go? Um, and so, for unjust speech, that's going to mean right conventional morality is nothing that you should you shouldn't obey it. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: So, I have a question about the the history. It's clear from Stripsides' motivations that this is a very litigious society, right? Everyone's just suing everyone else. And that's the recourse people have for disagreements, uh, at least in the marketplace, right? There's all this talk about creditors and debtors and that sort of thing. Is the justice that is coming out here between, between just and unjust speech, is that the same thing that can be achieved in a court of law? Or is that more of like an equity concept than a concept of justice?
2: Tom, you might have a better sense than i i would say they're blended in the in the normal mind in the kind of um Strepsides mind or better arguments mind traditional conservative mind it all should be one thing
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, so maybe the distinction uh, you know aristotle the, the distinction you make sarah goes back as far as aristotle but um you know has gets transformed in liberalism and it seems like that's already got some, a lot of thought behind it, right? That we want to mm-hmm. carefully distinguish these different spheres, um, which I think maybe traditionally were all blended together and, mm-hmm. and make a kind of potent cocktail that, that the sophists wanted to kind of tease apart. Mm-hmm. Usually I think most of them were hoping for the betterment of society. I don't think they wanted to destroy things necessarily. Um, but they might have, might have unwittingly done so in some way. Well,
1: I mean, in Aristophanes, it's really interesting, at least in the clouds, because by the end of the play, everything is destroyed, right? right? Society's home is broken, the thinkery has been burned, and and sort of that's the that's the scene that the play leaves us with when it opens with those two things, I imagine, right, being both on stage and both these sort of like structures that are in a kind of balance with one another. And then everything is is sort of like broken down by the end. And it strikes me that this uh, tableau with just speech and unjust speech is is part of what does the the yeah. destruction.
2: Yeah, that's very nice. Yeah, no, I, th- I
0: think that's that's really right. I mean, I guess you, your question here is, what is. Um, uh, how does just speech understand himself? And it, there seems to be a, a, you know both a, like a, just an attachment, like you should be a good person because that's the way that you should be. but there's also sort of a principle that's there that that can be teased apart and, and in, in a way is teased apart. I and mean, I think that the comedy here, Aristotle's comedy is in some ways much more damning about just speech than it is about unjust speech. Yeah. So shall we read a little bit more so we can get more of this uh, the dramatic momentum in our in our minds? do you want to so um... yeah
2: um so yeah a little bit further down in the speech they they stop this back and forth and then each one goes and has his each dog has his day right and um the just speech has has a moment where he ceases to seem like a bigoted uh you know prejudiced um illogical prank he's kind of like a dirty old man well, that's, that's his real um, uh, Achilles heel, I guess you'd say, to compare great things to small. He Homosexuality was part of the kind of traditional um, uh, view, uh, although they didn't want to admit it, and they, they wanted it to be chaste. Uh, now, it couldn't have always been chaste, right? Maybe sometimes it was chaste, and, and it was certainly an aspiration, but it was kind of chaste and what we would call sublimated. But, you know, just the law of averages seems to that they had to consummate it sometimes. And it wasn't um, same age homosexuality. It was pederasty. It was older, older men uh, with younger boys. And in fact, the bigger, the more the beard grew, the less the boy was considered attractive. So this old man, this this just speech is very concerned about education, liberal education, in a sense um not the kind that soccer piece offers but what boys traditionally get so he's thinking about boys all the time he's thinking about how they can be the best and how they can be the most beautiful and oh wouldn't i i kind of like them too so that's his achilles heel and there's a moment where um you get a kind of um beautiful vision that he has for these boys and i think you'll see that it, it collapses very quickly so this is a round line uh, 1005 um, and the way it collapses, I think is, is, is funny and in, in keeping with the comedy, he's talking about what um, he envisions for a young man who takes part in his traditional education, uh, which has a lot of music in it, poetry, dance, and a whole lot of physical education, you know, music and gymnastics, that's what Plato would say in the symposium. Not intellectual stuff. That's for later, or maybe never at all. Um, you know, build your body and build your soul. He says, "Going down to Academe Park, you'll run away under the sacred olive trees, crowned with a white reed, along with a chaste companion, your own age, smelling of morning glory." And this is a strange leisure, maybe minding your business. I think it's it, the register breaks a little bit there smelling of morning glory and minding your business in the white leaf casting poplar in springtime rejoicing when the plane tree whispers to the elm if you do these things i'm showing you and pay attention to them you'll always have a glossy chest shiny skin broad shoulders small tongue big buttocks it gets worse and worse Uh, it it finally says even you'll have a small penis Because, you know, obviously, if you do it the unjust speech says, that you're going to have a, a bigger one, is, you know, uncontrolled, you know. So it's just hilarious. That you can kind of see how he he has these beautiful visions for how he wants the boys to be chaste and virtuous and strong. But he ends up talking about their penises anyway. and, and anything that he can't, can't resist talking about. So this is what eventually will, I think, do him in when the unjust speech has his... His day, of
0: the time. and Aristophanes wants you to, to notice this, right? That every time he give, he starts with these beautiful speeches, they always end up in yeah. you know basically right. you know, sort of like soft porn descriptions right. of right. You know, various body parts. Right. Right. Right.
1: Well, and this is an I mean, this is a really important counterpoint to the way Strepsiades feels about Phidippides, his son, right? Because he he does regard his son as someone who is worth educating. You know, someone who's... Pers- I mean, it's a father and son relationship, so maybe not something we would expect to be sexualized. But this is... sir.
0: Know- can can I just say that you've put an, an unpleasant image in my mind?
1: Well, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, isn't that part of the point of the play? <laughs>
0: I mean, we, the play does end up talking about brother-sister incest and... Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Right, well, yeah.
1: And that the home... I mean, the home sort of falls apart by the end of it because, right. because of the beatings. But But this is this sort of like... Um, sexual um, chaos is right. part of it. Is part of why uh, yeah, right. yeah. the home is is no longer stable at the end of the play.
0: Well, Sarah, the home, you know, family life may be conventional. It may not be natural. I mean, right? I don't. I don't want to make any news flashes here.
1: Well, what? Sorry, what?
2: <laughs> I don't want to make any. Yeah. <laughs> I don't give anyone any. You thoughts, write that down. I Need to
1: write that down.
2: <laughs> so some conventions may be more natural than others.
1: <laughs> Fire burns I, the
2: same here and in Persia, and n- none of them allow the parent-child incest to to go on. So, right. It it does seem like some people could, if you're only smart enough, you could handle it. But most of us just aren't smart enough. We we couldn't handle it. I don't know.
0: Uh, I guess. I do. You think that's Aristophanes' position?
2: definitely that most of us aren't smart enough whether he thinks yeah. some people would be smart enough I I don't know that's a, interesting he seems to think that he is smarter than Socrates and smart right. enough to do almost anything get away with almost anything even things that Socrates can't get away with because he beat Cleon right Cleon was this very powerful politician and he says well I took him down when when I when he was at his peak that's not exactly true Cleon prosecuted Aristophanes in court, and Aristophanes got off. That's not quite the same thing as taking down a politician, but he did. You know, he does seem to think that he he has these powers of intellect and and practical, you know, practical abilities that would would save him in the city where so- where Socrates might run afoul of the legal system and eventually be destroyed by it
0: yeah well that's for sure right that socrates is going to end up getting killed and and aristophanes is not
2: right and we should point out that socrates in his defense speech actually mentions the clouds right yes says that you know i have i have these new accusers but there's also this old accuser this is what really puts stuff back in people's minds way back when
0: well i just think that there's so much in in plato that once you once you know this play well like you see it all over the place and that plato is really in dialogue with aristophanes you know from the get-go yeah so that that's that's a you know big reason to pay attention to it. Shall we read the unjust speech because we need the you know right? So uh, uh, just speech is as it were repressed, and right. unjust really repressed. Is going to express all the things that have been repressed in uh, in just speech. And and we should say for our listeners that he's going to say things that are shocking and morally anarchic, and that we we uh, we we do not endorse. This this is not investment advice. Is that is that the, the appropriate disclaimer right. at this point? Um, so, so, and, and just speech, uh, unjust speech makes his case by showing that all the people that just speech looks up to, i.e. all the gods are themselves do horrible things, right? You know, raping, you know, adultery, right? I mean, all kinds of horrible things. So, um, and maybe I'll just read, um, at, uh, about 1070. And so this is, I think is the, the, sort of the culmination of the, the whole argument. So he turns to Pheidippides and he says, for consider, lad, all that moderation involves and how many pleasures you're going to be deprived of, boys, women, cottabus, relishes, drinking, boisterous laughter. Well then, from here I go on to the necessities of nature. You've done some wrong, you've fallen in love, committed some adultery, and then you've been caught. You're ruined for you're unable to speak. You can't defend yourself. But if you consort with me, if you come and hang out with me, then use your nature, leap, laugh, believe that nothing is shameful. For if you happen to be caught as an adulterer, you'll reply to him that you've done him no injustice. Then you'll refer him to Zeus. How, quote, even he was worsted by love and women, yet how could you, a mortal, be greater than a god? <laughs> this is a, I mean, I, Paul, have you, you have children. Have you heard this argument from you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, the, yeah, the, they call it too quay cool and logic right but uh or or maybe uh yeah a fortiori, uh, arguing from the greater to the lesser point yeah that's um and of course the Greek gods were exceptionally vulnerable to this um you you know I suppose you could find places in the Old Testament where the God of the Hebrews seems to be unjust and you could say you could make some kind of case um but the, the Greek gods, the myths have them, you know, disguising, him, Zeus disguises himself as a bull to carry away a mortal woman uh, and uh, to, to um, have sex with her. So um, it seems like the traditions itself have plenty of, of uh, fodder for the unjust speech to use against it. it so it becomes a kind of self it, we would call it a deconstruction, right? A self-immolation um, of the tradition rather than really needing to pull it apart from outside. Right. But the action of the play is really to show what happens if you take that seriously,
0: that really does, you know, undermine at least Trepsides' understanding of what society is and and, exi- and how it exists, right? So the father beating is, I, meant to, I think, meant to be an image of, of, the principle of authority itself has been undermined. And once there are no rules, then anything goes right. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, the, the serious message is, well, we can't live like that. Like we can't have a society in which, in which there are no rules. Right. Right. Um, I mean, I guess one, so one reason why I, I, I like doing this plays because, you know, so I, when we talk about liberal education, we often start with John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, and John Stuart Mill makes the distinction between nature and convention. Mm-hmm. He calls it social of the majority. And, and you know, the, the principle there seems to be, we'll question everything. and But Mill basically thinks, well, we're going to question everything, and the process is going to be self-regulating in such a way that we're all going to end up at basically decent mm-hmm. um, results, right? That the marketplace of ideas, the best ideas will come out, and, and those ideals will you know, support a decent society. But Aristophanes is much, much darker than that. Right. That that's you, you start questioning everything and, and like, literally everything goes to hell. Right. Mm-hmm. As Sarah mm-hmm. said, like both the, the household and the the thinkery are
2: destroyed at the end of the play. Right. And you, I mean, just to take the opposite tack for a moment, you could see how um, someone younger, or inexperienced, um, might want to say well you know every rule is unfair you know every rule fails to capture some exception um so if people would only behave well enough or they were only smart enough right each person could make the right decision in the moment and you wouldn't even need rules if we were if you were purely rational actors yeah 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 so you could you can see you can see how our passions could get behind either or both of those um, theses alternately, even.
0: Well, but the unjust speech is is right about some things, right? I mean, right. yeah, you know, and he's cert- and he's right that the conventions are not, you know, somehow, at least so far as we can tell from Aristophanes, they they didn't come straight from Zeus. That they seem to be, you know, there for particular reasons, and were are what we would call social constructions.
2: Right, justifying the rules, rule of the fathers, for example. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I have another question about the, the just speech and unjust speech uh, back and forth. If, if the clouds was used uh, in Socrates' trial much later on, um, is there a way that we can compare, um, you know, what, what Socrates is trying to teach Pheidippides by trotting out these two figures And then maybe like what Aristophanes is trying to say to the audience about Socrates, by because these ideas are getting out. I mean the 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 battle between just speech and unjust speech is the innermost frame of the play, and it's still getting you know staged for for the audience, um, albeit in a bunch of frames that the, the play sets up as it unfolds. And so you know, is Aristophanes doing something? Maybe more sophisticated here, in in you know, in giving that battle between just speech and unjust speech a frame that is part of which is Socrates, um, who will you know ultimately be be tried.
0: Presumably, if you thought that it, if Aristophanes thought that 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 showing just speech and unjust speech was simply corrupting then he himself should be punished for, for revealing it because he is in a way doing what Socrates does, like showing it, like, look at this, here's this neat debate. But I mean, I guess he must think that that by showing it to us, we can, you know, get, you know, learn something about the world that that would be useful and 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 not destructive of society.
1: Right. But it, it but it has to be framed either, either in the thinkery, right. It has to be positioned outside of the, you know, out of the so-called, what our students call the real world.
0: Yeah, it has to be swiftly punished. I mean that, that happens in the play, mm-hmm. right?
1: Right, right. But it has to ha- it, ha- it also has to happen. Which I mean, it seems I mean there wouldn't be a play if it if it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, I was just thinking about that, the tension, um, and the way that might have played into this becoming evidence in a you know in a real world trial of Socrates.
0: Well, yeah. do you think that Socrates learned
2: anything from this?
1: Yeah. So
2: some sort of cognoscenti actually think he probably was a lot like this um, at the time and changed. Um, there's a image in Xenophon's analysis where uh, Xenophon, who was a student of Socrates, who went on this um, trip to fight with mercenaries uh, against um Persians well it was for a Persian pretender who was hiring Greek mercenaries um they they get in trouble their leader is killed and they they're trapped in the middle of Persia and he he has this dream of his father's house burning down and people have actually said that well that's the think tank burning down right there and his father is Socrates and uh this is what was going on back at Athens when he was trapped in Persia I I find that going you know that's that's an interesting speculation but maybe it's going too far I uh, on the other hand a lot of people think oh no Socrates never had a school this is just taking a bunch of traits from other thinkers um and putting them all together and calling it Socrates because maybe Socrates was one of the most interesting he was certainly a character right people knew that he was physically strong he had endurance incredibly ugly and maybe could do anything he wanted with you in argument right that's a that's a big rep to <laughs> be carrying around so that yeah. I, I don't know if he actually had a school but I feel like this probably did change his behavior certainly it would have changed the way Plato and Xenophon um depicted him so if he was like Socrates, like Aristophanes says to make a cultural icon they would need to make a new Socrates who is pretty much the opposite of all those things.
0: Right. So in, um, in the Republic, you get a, a kind of stand in for unjust speech and the, the character of Thersemicus or the, you know, Claucon speech at the beginning of book two. And Socrates is going to spend, you know, nine books of the Republic trying to, you know, charm that out of them. Right. Show them that, that yeah. he's not, you know, that he has an answer to unjust speech. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of reenacting of this
2: sort of primal scene. Um, and Socrates becomes civically responsible in the platonic corpus right he dies you know he could have easily have gotten out of that charge uh and he could have easily left after he was convicted and just continue to be irresponsible but instead he died as a martyr to philosophy uh because it was good for athens to have philosophers around that's that's a big deal that's a big change from what we see this guy here right right, uh, right. So I either, mean, has this, yeah. this feeling that he's a little
0: bit like you know um, somebody who had a wild past and is now restrained, right? It's, you know <laughs> he was a hippie in his youth, and but now he's you know a uh, sober. Uh, dare I said a sober St. John's tutor.
2: <laughs> he's
0: uh, a lot smarter than St. John's tutor, so that's the only difference. <laughs> um, but uh, but I wish I, I could
2: argue I mean, like this.
0: Just to think about the the, the bigger context here. I mean, b- because. There is real praise in Aristophanes in even in this play of Socrates, right? there's There's something about wanting to know the world the way that it is that Aristophanes looks up to. And so that's why that's why it's so funny. You think you're so smart and in, in a way, you're the smartest guy out there. um, but you you just don't understand human beings at all. And uh, you know how many how many professors have we known and who've been you know varieties of this this exact thing? Um, but, uh, but I, I just wonder if, if it's even in the contemporary academy that we also have, um, in order, you know, the intellectual life requires questioning things and being aware of the distinction between, we don't call it nature versus convention, but we talk about social constructions and things like that. And that, that, that the life of the mind requires that kind of radicalness, which, which implies some quite scary things about society. Um, and but that that's trying to think about how we relate to the rest of the world. That's what this play is really about um, in some way. I'll, I'll give you a, uh, an example that um, after I came to the university, um, you know, we, we pick a book for um, all the freshmen to read every year. And the book is always some sort of lefty book that that's, you know, is sort of interesting, but not ultimately that interesting. But one year they picked a book in which that the, the thesis of the book was we live in an unjust economic order. And that given the fact that the economic order is unjust, people who steal from their bosses um, should not be seen as criminals, but should be seen as heroes. That should be seen as a form of economic civil disobedience. And it was really things like falsifying time cards is something that you should, that should be praised. Yeah. Now, on one level, like you know, I, you know, I teach Marx every term. I teach, for heaven's sake, I mean Plato's Republic, right? It says sort of the same thing, right? Like you're living in an unjust social order that distorts your soul in horrific ways. Um, so, you know, you, you can't deny that that's part of what we need to be talking about in the university. But also that just just the lack of self knowledge, right? So, what you go to a housekeeper on campus and you say are you really going to say it's okay for you to steal things from the president's office when you're right. Doing things? Right. I mean, is the, is this like the university's message that that would be okay? Right. Because I, I'm pretty sure that, that, that the university would fire any housekeeper who, who stole in, in less than a second, right. Mm-hmm. That, that there would be no mercy whatsoever. Yeah. And so it just was, it just struck me as such a, such a oblivious, unself-knowing thing to, Um, to propose something that we should think about as though it were like a practical thing that you could put into effect right this second.
1: And in addition to that, that if, let's say, if the faculty would start shirking their responsibilities to students as a way of, you know, pushing back against
0: the... um, (laughs) as opposed to just the normal.
1: (laughs) All the names have been changed to protect the identities... (laughs) (laughs) No, but right. If if people stopped, you know, stopped holding their office hours or stopped writing letters of recommendation for students, it wouldn't lessen the amount of work that has to be done by the professoriate. There would still be students who want to go to graduate school or to law school. Uh, There would still be students who have questions about how to write a thesis statement. And so that work has to be done by someone. And the idea that, you know, if one person just backed off, some mm. colleague is going to have to pick up that work, and and so you know that right. that argument that it's that it's just a you know some sort of individual act of economic disobedience um, disregards the idea that there are networks and very complicated ecosystems of of labor, and uh, that that has to be part of the math problem.
0: And and but also that that we're you know we're dependent on students buying our product, right? That that however much we we want to think that we're you know pure thinkers and that the message that we send to them, you know, I mean I mean literally that so the message of the clouds that they get from Socrates is that, you know, don't respect your parents. In fact you might even beat your parents, right, metaphorically or non metaphorically. And you know that might be a foolish message. Right. Or you might you might want to present that in a delicate way, I guess, I guess
2: you might say. So liberal education implies this distinction between theory and practice, which is an artificial distinction, right? Um, It it invites us to go think as radically as we can while inviting us not to put those ideas into practice, which is (laughs) you can see the hypocrisy in that
0: well um, I, mean, you might, I mean you might think of the you know the separation of the Academy from regular politics as a way of defending ourselves of yeah. saying, you know we're not trying to overthrow the regime because yeah. you know we've got more important things to do um, right right and you know but I we, you know the, the line has gotten blurrier and blurrier I think but but the danger is you know people are going to push back right? against us yeah for sure yeah, yeah. yeah so maybe sarah's uh, thought that you know strepsides is a version of the trump voter, is not entirely insane
1: well and the question this raises for me is whether or not socrates and the methods of the thinkery succeed in changing who strepsides is or who if i did you know does any meaningful change happen in result of the the thinkerys methods
2: well, Phidippides goes from a guy who's worried about his tan and his horses and winning horse races, chariot races, I guess. I don't know exactly what they're doing, but and it's drag and racing and spending all the money, you know, requisite to that, and being a cool guy, probably with the kind of traditional morality too, uh, although with the hypocrisies that we've seen traditional morality has. he goes from that to this um follower of socrates so there's a big conversion there i think that strepsides didn't undergo that conversion but phidipides did and he argues like um socrates now Um, and it's interesting that these new gods the clouds kind of fall out of the picture uh doesn't refer to them doesn't pray to them not interested in them nature is big he nature and natural necessity compulsion, the way things have to be, that's really big on his um, agenda, but not not the new religion and and he, Yeah, I think that's a success of Socrates for what, you know, <laughs> maybe a, a bad success, but he he really converted a guy who didn't want to have anything to do with these pale faces. And now he's just totally one of them.
1: Right. Well, and so now I have another question about the clouds. So there, when Socrates is introducing the clouds, he talks about how they they go everywhere on the globe, and they sort of they they reflect. They're mimetic, and they yeah. you know, they turn into a centaur or a wolf depending on, on what they're you know what they're hanging over or looking at.
0: The poetry, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And and so, do they have capacity to intervene in in the in the history of the of the play itself or do i mean do they have are they agents of change or are they
0: well they claim to be don't they? They, they 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 sort of say well if you if you sacrifice to us we'll make it rain at the right time right and if you think about it that's sort of the ex- most primordial thing that
2: you need from the gods is to make it rain at the right time
1: right and yet the thinkery burns down because the clouds don't
2: they could have rained on they it right on it. they could have saved it so they've they've turned against socrates by this by that time if they exist at all, right? right? But we've sort of seen them and heard them sing, right? So they sort of <laughs> seem to exist, and they—and everybody knows the clouds exist, right? We just didn't know they were gods. Well, but but but, but and uh, that they're mimetic—it's just a wonderful, it creation of his to start us thinking. Well, okay, maybe they do change, you know. <laughs>
0: Um, By the end, uh, Zeus wins. Right. I mean, this is the story of every tragedy is that you fight against Zeus and then Zeus wins. And, and Strepsiades has his own version of that, that he's you know, he's, he's willing to, if, you know, if, if he can get out of his debts, he's willing to believe that Zeus doesn't exist. But then once, you know, the mother is attacked. Right. I mean, that's, he, I mean, that's the, the, the big, you know, the the last thing that he's like, Zeus does exist. Damn it. Right. Uh, That's why I need to burn, burn these books
2: and, you know, um, and the, the clouds have told him by that time. You know, we led you to this doom, where you've lost your son. You don't. You guys can't love each other anymore because he's so changed. Um, because we saw that you had a lust for wickedness, and so we kind of did what gods always do. You know, that's, <laughs> that's we're we're just sort of the normal normal old thing, and nobody knew about us until now. But I feel like in in some ways the clouds come out the best of everybody in the play like Sarah said that the two principal the houses two, it's the destruction of two houses the two houses you first see on the stage but the clouds come out with this sort of sterling reputation as new gods who fit in and help the old gods and see that justice is done <laughs> what more do you want that these they they've really their reputation went from nobody knew they existed to at the end of this play, they're like, "Wow, these are cool new gods."
0: <laughs> so You think it's all a scheme for, for the clouds to get uh, to go viral?
2: Well, or that that's part of the drama. Something why Aristophanes would want us to think along those lines? Yeah, I mean, I, he's not he's not happy with the old pantheon either. In some ways, he's just as radical as Socrates, but right his innovation is, it's an innovation. It's not a revolution.
0: He's, a but he also he understands how to present things, how to speak to people in a way that Socrates just doesn't. Right. I mean, but I wonder if the, if the deepest theme isn't that even for Aristophanes, that there's a, that he does really respect what Socrates is doing, like the the inquiry into nature and that, but the inquiry into nature leads in certain directions that's in tension with what strep, Strepsides and what society needs. We need, and, and this is, to me, is, the, is a profound truth, right? When, when we do free speech in class and students are like, well, we can't have complete free speech because then people will use the N-word. And that's completely true, right? Aristophanes is showing you that, that um, even as an academic community, we need rules, we need values, we need norms, we, we need gods, right? Yeah. Isn't that the yeah. sort of the, the amazing thing about the play?
2: Yeah, that's very interesting because even nature, which was supposed to substitute for God, right? Vortex Is the new king. Zeus is out. Uh the Homer Simpson is gonna deify that nature. It's gonna make him into Mr. Vortex, right? Sir Vortex, whatever. Lord Vortex, (laughs) Voldemort. (laughs) So, in a in a kind of similar way, the new gods that Aristophanes has introduced to the city are nature goddesses. There's stuff we knew about they're wispy airy misty things we already we always knew we just didn't know that they were goddesses right and they're mimetic and they're muses and in a way i'm one of them right i they speak for me um so somehow my poetry is is looking at nature but personifying it in a way that the rank and file are going to do anyway
0: right Um, he understands that somehow better than socrates does well, so I think we're out of time, um, Paul. It's been great. We've, I've, you know, it's, you know, Aristophanes is all, all, always fun, but I, you know, I've learned a lot from listening to you and Sarah talk. So um, thank you for coming. We look forward to talking about your book uh, as soon as we finish reading it, which will be next week. Um, I think I think it'll take a lot longer
2: than a week, unfortunately. <laughs> but I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time uh to do this and you've got a really great thing going Tom obviously you're to be commended for the Lincoln Scholars which is a lot of it is your idea and that's uh fantastic that people are being educated liberally at uh yes. American University with with all the tensions and the difficulties that entails uh both in our day and way back in, in fifth century Athens. maybe not still, that different from still nevertheless America. it can be done and you're proving that it yeah it well, we hope, we hope. well thank you Paul
0: and thank you, Sarah. It's been great. We'll, we'll look forward to you talking to you next episode.
1: Paul, Tom, thank you. This was really fun.
0: Thanks a lot.